Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words in my mouth, may the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm curious if something like this has, uh, has ever happened to you before. Uh, someone asks you a question, but the question that they ask isn't the question that they want or need to have answered. So as I was talking with a fellow parent about this this past week, and I asked her this question, and she said to me, I know exactly what you're talking about. You see, it's like when my, it's like when my son comes into the kitchen at 5.30 and wants a cookie. See, he really doesn't want a cookie. Well, I mean, he wants a cookie, but doesn't really need a cookie. What he needs is dinner. Or uh, it happened to me uh, earlier uh, this week, one morning, I'm eating breakfast, and, and my son says, Daddy, where's that thing with the big hole on top and the little hole on bottom? And uh, if he wasn't holding a, a, a glass bottle in one hand and a little pitcher in the other, it wouldn't have struck me uh, that what he was really looking for was a funnel. You know, you don't have to be a parent uh, to have this kind of experience because maybe your spouse looks at you and asks, do you love me? You know, depending on the context, uh, that could mean anything from, uh, today was a really rough day and I need some encouragement, or I forgot to get milk at the grocery store. You know, maybe it's a, a kid or a coworker, and they ask this question, but the question they ask isn't really the question that they want or need to have answered. And what many of us know about situations like these is that context is key. I mean, what's the tone in her voice? Where was he before he came into the room? Am I getting eye contact? Do they seem distracted? Is this irony? Is it sarcasm? Or should I understand their words exactly as they're spoken? You see, context is key, and that's the challenge that we face in today's reading from Luke chapter 13, because the context isn't immediately obvious. So just a moment ago, uh, you heard this reading, and uh, as a brief reminder, we're about halfway through uh, Luke's gospel. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and along the way, someone asks him the following question, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And the key to understanding this passage is understanding the context. The key to understanding this question is understanding what kind of question this is. And the challenge we face is that we just don't get a lot of details. I mean, uh, all Luke tells us is that someone, someone asked Jesus this question. But is this someone one of Jesus' disciples? Someone who's asking out of a, a genuine sense of concern as people are pulling back and peeling off as Jesus is slowly making his way towards Jerusalem. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? 
You know, as someone, someone with an evangelistic heart, uh, someone who wants to know about his brother or sister, someone who wants to know about his, his mom or his dad, someone who wants to know about the person he's living with or the person he's working with or the person who's living next door. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Or is this someone, someone who needs to make a point? A religious leader out to get Jesus. A skeptic who, who's found a flaw in something that Jesus has done or said. Or, or simply someone who likes to have a good theological conversation but has simply forgotten what good theological conversations serve. Lord, are only a few going to be saved? You see, the key to understanding this passage is understanding what kind of question this is, and, and, and the challenge we face is that we just don't get a lot of details, and so for just a moment, I want you to notice two of the details that we do get. And the first of those details um, is, is the kind of question this is. See, if, uh, if this was a genuine question, if the guy asking this question uh, really wanted to know or really needed to know uh, this answer, uh, that when Jesus responds to this question, Jesus would have said something like, are only a few being saved? Yes, only a few. Or Jesus' response would have sounded something like, many Many are going to be saved. Or, that's none of your business. Follow me. You see, uh, Jesus' response, or rather, Jesus' non response, what kind of question this is. And what Jesus is doing is he's redirecting the person who asks this question because he knows that there is something going on in the heart of the person who asks this question. So he, he, he answers this question in such a way to turn this man back towards the basics. So that's the first thing I want you to notice in this passage, uh, Jesus' non-response to this question. The second thing I want you to notice in this passage is who... Jesus addresses. You know, when you're, when you're listening to it, this is the part that's really easy to just skip over. Because Jesus doesn't just respond to him. Jesus responds to them. And, and all of the responses that Jesus makes are in the plural. Jesus says to him, uh, to them, you plural make every effort to enter. And you, plural, will begin to say to us, open to us. And then he will say to you, you, plural, I don't know where you come from. See, Jesus knows that there is something going on in the heart of the person who asked this question, and he knows that this person isn't alone. And so he directs his response to all people who are journeying to Jerusalem, and, and he warns them. He calls them to be spiritually vigilant because he knows, that, uh, he knows that our curiosity can also have this way of getting in the way of trusting Jesus. If I only had this answer, you can imagine this man saying, if I only had this answer, then the way forward would be easy. But you can have all the answers in the world, 
And the way forward, the way of trusting Jesus, is still a struggle. And so Jesus redirects this man, and, and perhaps, perhaps he even redirects us. And of all the Bible studies uh, that I've taught over the years, uh, perhaps one of my favorite was this, uh, this three-week-long Bible study uh, that I led uh, just before I took the call here to be a pastor at Messiah. And the, the study was called Tough Questions. And uh, I invited people to share with me the kind of tough questions uh, that they face as Christians, as those who, who trust in Jesus. And we only had three weeks so I had to do a lot of narrowing down on these kind of questions. And I had to, to focus on the kind of people that were asking them. And so we settled on these three questions. Uh, why does God allow suffering in this world? And uh, can you be a faithful Christian and a scientist? And then why, why should I and why should we belong to a church? And my goal in teaching these questions was not to provide the, the one right definitive question answer to all of these questions. I mean, the one right definitive answer to these questions is, yes, you should belong to a church, and yes, you can be a a faithful Christian and a scientist, and yes, you can have a loving God and an all-powerful God even in a world where there is suffering. But my goal wasn't to, to provide the one right definitive answer. My goal was to show how different Christians throughout history have wrestled with these kind of questions as they faithfully followed Jesus. And I'll never forget uh, the last night that we got together. We were, uh, we were talking about the question, why should we belong to a church? And, and a woman about my mom's age in the room, she raises her hand, and, and she looks at me, and she says, you know, my daughter and, and her husband, they're about your age. You know, I brought my daughter uh, to church every Sunday growing up, and uh, And I made sure that my daughter uh, went through confirmation. I made sure uh, that she attended youth group. Uh, But my daughter and and her husband, they're about your age, and they don't belong to a church. And I don't know what to do. What do I do? Why do you go to church? You know, what I want you to notice about this woman is real. In the five years I got to serve as her pastor, I got to see uh, just how real it was. I mean, I got to see that she loves her Lord. I got to see that she has hope and peace and joy and strength, uh, that she knows what her Lord has done for her, that he lived the life she never could, and that by living that life, by dying on a cross and rising again, he gave her new life. And, and forgiveness and victory over the, the sin and the brokenness that we cause and experience in this world. And, and that's why she brought her daughter to church when her daughter was growing up. That's why uh, she made sure that her daughter could attend confirmation and attend youth group. And that's why she struggled. Because even though she had done all of the right things hadn't completely connected for her daughter. But see, here's the other thing I want you to notice uh, about this woman, and, and I think it's as true for her as it is for us. When we struggle, there's this temptation. 
the temptation to, to replace the struggle with, with an answer, with the answer to a question, if I only knew the answer, then the way forward would be easy. You know, it's not that uh, knowing things about our faith uh, isn't valuable. I mean, I'm a guy who was standing in the classroom teaching a class about tough questions. But it is to say that the, the knowledge and the understanding, the search for those things, the knowledge and the understanding of the love of God can begin to displace and even at times erode the simple and joy-filled experience of simply trusting the Lord in our hearts. You see, we're pilgrims on a journey, and, and we are journeying with Jesus towards this goal, toward the last day, toward the final judgment. When Jesus returns, and when he raises the dead, and when all those who, who believe in him, those who trust in him, inherit the gift that he has for us, eternal life. And as we journey, Jesus tells us to make every effort to strive toward that goal. And at some point, uh, as you were listening to this passage, and maybe at some point as you were listening to my sermon, uh, the thought crossed your mind why is it that Jesus is telling us to do something? You see, I thought that we were saved by grace, through faith, and not by works, as Paul tells us, so that no one can boast. Why is Jesus telling us to do something? Why is Jesus telling us to strive? How does that fit in to the faith that I have? You see, the reason why, as uh, the old hymn says, is that we walk in danger all the way. You see, Satan is always going to be working to distract us, to trip us up, to lead us astray. And, and even though Satan's efforts are ultimately going to fare, fail, even though uh, someday there's going to be this banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob under the reign of God, even though all of this stuff is going to happen along the way, on the journey, Satan isn't going to leave us alone. And so Jesus tells us to strive to struggle, to make every effort to enter through the narrow door because the life of faith, the life of trusting Jesus, isn't always easy. And the word he uses, uh, in Greek, it's agonizomai. That's it's fun to say, at least if you're a pastor. Uh, the word he uses, it reflects this fact because it's the word that gives us words in English like agony. And so we strive, we, we struggle, we press on towards this goal. But, but then that might make you wonder, okay, that's not by works, but what does that look like? You see, Jesus also gives us an answer to that question too. Uh, but the answer that he gives us, it's the opposite of what we expect. You see, Jesus tells us to strive to be last, to strive uh, to be least, to strive to be nothing. There are some, Jesus says, who are first and, and who will be last. And there are some who are last, Jesus says, who will be first. You see, in one sense, uh, this striving, the life of faith, the life of trusting Jesus is agony. But in another sense, uh, 
striving, the life of faith, the life of trusting Jesus isn't striving at all. It's simply being honest. I am nothing. I have nothing. And if there's anything I do have that I could brag about, it says nothing about me and everything about the God I love and the God I serve. And this is how things work in the kingdom of God. Our place in his kingdom has nothing to do with what we've done and everything to do with what he has done. You see, Jesus, Jesus entered the narrow door on his way into Jerusalem. And Jesus, Jesus offered himself to his disciples in a meal that he still offers to us. And when Jesus had every right to take his place at the right hand of God, he didn't. Instead, he was numbered among the transgressors, and he was treated like a sinner. Uh, Peter tells us that he bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, Jesus became last so that we might become first. And this Jesus, this Jesus who journeyed to Jerusalem, this Jesus whom God raised from the dead, it's from him that the good news goes out. Because in him we have peace with God. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. In him we have the promise that even though we might experience agony in this life, one day we're going to experience eternal life with him. And so we strive. We agonize. And, and as we strive, as we agonize, we never do it alone. See, God knits us together here in this place so that we might cheer one another on. So that together we might be honest about who we really are. Those who are nothing and those who have nothing. And yet those whom Jesus will raise and those whom Jesus has already raised up. Because he loves us and he leads us from north and south, east and west to a narrow door where we find our place in the kingdom of God. So may God bless you on the journey of faith, of striving, of struggling, of trusting in Jesus both this day and the next, as you struggle and, and agonize together, as you become last, and Jesus makes you first. Amen.